Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Dangerous Rhetoric. This is episode 78? Yes. 78. I believe so. It's <laughs> a lot of episodes. Yes, it is. And today we are joined by the based can uh, Canadian. You're not Canadian. Oh, my God, Brent. You already fucked the intro. <laughs> based comedian. I should have did it. And documentarian and fil filmmaker, Lila Hart. Thank you, Lila, for joining us. I'm so sorry for... Thank you so much. Yeah, I couldn't be Canadian. They wouldn't allow me in the country. They wouldn't allow you. Yeah, Justin Trudeau would kick you out real quick. It's not working out. So today we're going to talk about comedy. We're going to talk about Lila's film, The American History of Voter Fraud, which you can see on her YouTube channel. There's a link in the description. Um, but don't forget, please, to like, subscribe to the channel if it's your first time here. Uh, like the video, comment, leave us a comment. We love comments. We will love to engage with the comments. Uh, let us know what you think. If there's a subject that we cover today that's particularly of interest or you feel strongly about, leave a little note there. And uh, if you are so moved to graciously donate financially uh, to the show, we have links in the description, Venmo, PayPal, Cash App. We take all of them. Um, but without further ado, thank you so much, Lila. We uh, we recently hung out with Lila on Miss Carrie Smith's Carfifi break, mm -hmm. and we had to have Lila on, you know, because we wanted more Lila time. Yeah, we were smitten. She is funny. Oh my god, you can see Lila's stand up if you just you know go to her YouTube channel or just you know Google her. It comes right up. <laughs> Um, Lila is amazing. She's hilarious. Yeah, you made me choke on my food the other day. Put something on and then you cracked a joke. And I was like, I had to go out of the room actually. But I think it was the one where you said you looked like a, an eight year old from behind. Yeah, I was, I was dead. I was like, I need to. I'm gonna choke right now. Yes, you guys can't tell, but Lila has spina bifida, which makes her torso a little tinier. You really can't tell when you're just chatting like this. I guess we can just get that out of the way and kind of start with that because yeah. probably one of the first things I imagine people ask you about or, or talk to you about, and you know, maybe explain a bit about what your condition is, mm -hmm. and you know, and then from there, I guess you can go into like how you got into comedy as someone who is. You know, disabled. Perfect. So um, I have spina bifida and scoliosis. I know here on screen, you're like, she just looks like she's probably like five foot seven or something. <laughs> Camera trick. <laughs> um, I'm actually four foot six. And spina bifida is as what it is. It's like ba basically being born with a spinal cord injury. So when I was born, um, my spine didn't form properly and there was like a hole in my back. So I had to have multiple surgeries as a baby and a child to try and fix that. And they told my parents that I'd never be able to walk, that I would have learning difficulties and that, you know, I could possibly die by the time I was 13 and a whole like plethora of issues. My, um, my mom is from the Philippines and my dad was in the military for 20 years. He uh, was in the U.S. Navy. And so I was born at uh, a triple or medical hospital in Hawaii, Honolulu, Hawaii. Oh, cool. And, yeah. And you know, I'm just so grateful that I was born here in the United States because I had access to incredible um, doctors and surgeons who and, you know, did all the operations on me and made it possible for me able to walk. My dad tells this story of when I was nine months old, I was supposed to have this 12 hour operation and he was very nervous about it. So he went to go visit the surgeon. And he goes into the surgeon's office and on the surgeon's wall, there was a poster that said, winning only matters in war and in surgery. 
And when he saw that, he was like, okay, she's going to be okay. And, you know, by the grace of God, I am able to walk. And I'm so grateful for that. But um, I went to Washington State University. My degree is in broadcast productions with a minor in political science. My dream was always to be a newscaster behind a news desk because I thought, okay, behind a news desk sitting like this, nobody would know that I was four foot six and that I had spina bifida and I could just, you know, hide my disability. And um, I remember when I was in college, I, I really wanted to be in a sorority. That was like my dream. And I sorority rushed two years in a row and I didn't get into any of the sororities. And um, my senior year, this drunk girl comes up to me and she had like tears in her eyes. She was crying. She was like, Lila, I have to just get, I have to tell you the reason none of the sororities wanted you is because we didn't want to be known as a house with a crippled girl. And um, that was really heartbreaking to hear, you know, as a 21 year old in college, already dealing with so much of my um, feeling uncomfortable in my body and now being told that. And I got into stand up comedy truly because I wanted to find love, you know, and I realized that the only way that I was going to be able to do that is was to conquer really my um, the feelings I had about my body and going on stage for the first time. Well, this is what happened. I had this epiphany. I was in the shower when I was living in Los Angeles. And I was like, you know what? No one's going to hire you as the four foot six love interest on a soap opera. But if you became <laughs> a comedian, they will write in parts for you in movies. Like that is how you have to do it. So I got out of the shower. I remember I went on my laptop and I just like looked up an open mic. And then I like pressed record and I pretended to do like a stand up comedy thing. And I dressed up like I wore this gold dress and I curled my hair and I went to this open mic and I went on stage. And for the first time I'm on stage on the microphone and I talk about having spina bifida and I make jokes about it. And it was so liberating, so freeing because as soon as I got off stage, it was like, I had the immediate respect from everybody in that room and it wasn't about my disability anymore. Like they could just see me as a person. Mm -hmm. And so um, today is actually my six month anniversary with my husband or our oh, married. Congrats. Thank wow. You. Uh, we got married on 2 22 at 2 PM with our two <laughs> witnesses in so Dallas. Cool. Was that planned? <laughs> well, kind of, but um, a little bit, yeah. And I, I, the first time my husband saw me was actually, he's also a stand up comedian, was um, at an open mic and he saw me performing on stage. And I just think it's so, uh, you know, it's so cliche what they say that, you know, like you find love when you truly do learn to love yourself. But I am a testament that that is very much true because before my husband, I just, you know, I wasn't. I couldn't talk about my disability. I never, I hated to say spina bifida. I mean, I literally would tell guys that I dated that um, I was born premature, even though premature babies like grow up and become normal size. But I thought that sounded better than saying I have spina bifida and scoliosis. I couldn't even say those words. So I truly have to say that stand up comedy really gave me the confidence to just be like, this is who I am. And, you know, What's that? I think it's amazing that uh, your your plan went total 180. Like you're originally planning a career where you can just hide 
this part of yourself, right? You can sit there, you can, you know, do the newscaster thing. And then you went total 180. You're like, you know what? I'm going to go on stage and show my entire self and not just show my entire self. I'm going to joke about it too. It's uh, I think it's amazing. And the fact that you said, you know, you kind of went into it to find love and you did find love through comedy, which is, yeah, it's kind of like a movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great movie. When I um when I was growing up, I didn't really like my parents truly did not treat me like I was disabled. Like my mom and my dad really like, just pushed me to do anything that I wanted. So I remember I was in the fourth grade and I was shorter than the kindergartners. Okay. And I was like, I really hate this, but I need respect in this school. How can I get respect in this school? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to run for ASB president. So if I'm president, then they'll know that I'm not a kindergartner, right? So I came home on fourth grade on the bus, and I told my mom I'm going to run for ASB president. And that night I wrote my speech, and my slogan was, I may be small, but I can make a big difference. <laughs> and I ran against Jordan Alexander, and his slogan was, don't be a salamander, vote for Alexander. And I'm like, <laughs> Nobody's going to turn into an amphibian if we don't vote for you. So <laughs> clearly I won by a landslide. Nice. And, uh, it was, you know, and my parents, they really never treated me differently. And I, I didn't even truly understand like the severity of my disability, like of spina bifida um, until I was 21 years old. And I went to an event called Life Rolls On. And it's, it's in uh, California. It's an amazing event event where they um, have a bunch of disabled people. They go to the beach. Um, they have uh, people teach them how to surf. And it's like this awesome event. And so I go. And it was the first time I had met children with spina bifida. And I remember there was this little girl. Her name was Lucy. She was seven years old. And she was on the beach and in the sand. And she was like, Lila, come to the water with me. And she's just playing in the sand and she starts to crawl on her on her on her arms like this. And I realized like, oh, she can't walk. Her spine a bit, but it makes it to where she can't walk. And I didn't know, like, do I do I walk with her? Like, or do I crawl next? I didn't know what to do. But I remembered when I was a little kid, I hated when people got on like their knees to talk to me or like, you know, like made me feel different. So I just walked next to her and I played with all these little kids in the water and couldn't walk. And that day. I went back to my car and I called my mom and I was like, you know what? I am done feeling sorry for myself, feeling insecure about my legs. I'm going to wear whatever the hell I want to wear. If I want to wear a skirt, I'm going to wear it because I used to be so insecure about my skinny, tiny legs, you know? And so um, that was kind of like the start was like meeting these kids. Like I have to kind of be like this in a way, like, um, I don't want to say role model, but kind of in, in, in a sense, because an example, I mean, they yeah. need they need to see that that people with this condition can go on and live normal lives and be happy. Exactly. And I didn't I just didn't want to feel sorry for myself or just hide myself, you know, like, um, life is life is really short, and you should just wear what you want to wear and dress how you want to dress and not feel insecure about it. So that was like really like the the big turning point for me at 21 was doing that and then i started comedy at 24. so it was it was really like this this journey kind of getting into stand-up was truly just accepting my disability 
And what's your process like? Like when you decide, you know, okay, I'm, you know, like, do you sit down and write? Do you just sort of like have a loose, you know, idea that you just take to open mics or, you know, what, what is, what is your process look like for coming up with jokes? Cause I know everybody's got something different. Yeah. You know, okay. I think joke writing is kind of like, it's like music in a sense of, okay. Um, stand-up comedy is the, the most difficult form of public speaking because it's not just about, um, you know, going up there and talking. You have to make people laugh every 30 seconds. And then at the one minute and a half mark, it has to be a big laugh. And then it all has to like tie in together to like, you want your beginning joke and your ending joke of the whole set to kind of tie back to the first joke, right? And my writing process is like, if I, if I'm like in the car and I think of something funny, I'll just, you know, I'll put it in my notepad or like, I'll just like voice memo it. And then it's, it's kind of, I, okay. I was always one, I was always that person. Like when I would be out with my friends, you know, like at a club or something, people would come up to me because I love talking to people so much and people would be like, are you some sort of comedian or something? Cause I just love telling stories, you know, and I just love people. And I think it's because when I was a kid, I couldn't like play sports really. So I read a lot of books. Like I remember being nine years old and reading the entire Alice in Wonderland book. It's like this thick. And I read it for like, it was 12 hours. And I would just get lost in these books nice. because, I, <laughs> because I thought to myself- I'm a book nerd, so I love it. Right? And I just thought to myself, okay, I can't be, I'm not going to be like the strongest person. I couldn't, I could not run the mile. Like, and you know, in the sixth grade where they made everybody run the mile together, right? I couldn't really run that well. And me and this kid named Russell, um, he was, he was very big. So he couldn't run as well. And we would, we would run every, we would sing Jessica Simpson's um, nothing but a t-shirt on. And we would like sing and like run together. And then like all the other kids would run by us and like cheer us on. It was so embarrassing, but <laughs> they were just trying to be nice, but I can see why it would be embarrassing. Cause then it you was, feel like yeah, it was embarrassing. Like we weren't even on the first lap finishing the first lap and they already were like on the third lap and they're like yeah go guys and we're like yeah oh, dear. we would like run 15 steps and then walk 15 steps and then run 15 steps and then sing jessica simpson nothing but a t-shirt on to like try to make us feel better um i love russell i hope he's doing well nice. he really helped me during that time anyway sorry i got off so, a little no off. it's okay so you take like you have like little ideas that you put down and then do you, you take it to like the open mic to test it out or how do you how do you get like how do you know like i guess the only way you can know really is to take it to an open mic and test it out right brent's been wanting to like dabble and stand i have so dabble, i think I, part, smidge. I think part of him wants some advice here <laughs> no okay here here's my best advice the best stand of comedy comes from a place of complete truth Truth is funny. The truth is what is hilarious. And and I started stand up in LA, so in 2016, and I would go to open mics all day, like four, five, six open mics in in a day that you could go to back then. Um, everything changed in 2020, but yeah. back then it was like so fun. You just go to all these mics, and I also think like you have to be in the in the trenches, like. The most difficult place that I've ever performed stand-up was at a strip club in Nashville. And I performed with my friend, Sylvia Sage. She's a porn star and comedian. So I was opening for her at the strip club um, in Nashville. 
And mind you, they didn't even tell anybody that there was going to be comedy. All right. So it was like naked girl, naked girl, naked girl. Now here I am with a microphone. And everybody's looking at me like, why is she not naked? And why what is she doing with the mic? What is going on? And then I do my 15 minutes. And then my friend gets up and she does her set. And then she starts to strip because she that was part of her thing. And I was like on the sidelines, like cheering her on because I didn't know what else to do. But it was really fun. And I felt like that made me a better comedian, though, is performing at these high difficulty places. Because if you can perform at a strip club, you literally can perform anywhere. Yeah. Now, I've I've been to a couple open mics. And then just as I was sort of like getting used to the experience of being on stage, uh, they that's when they started to close them all down. And, <laughs> and then they, they've come back now here. Uh, they're pretty much back. They were checking, you know, the, the Vax passes for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I think they've stopped that. I haven't been back, you know, but I, I really have been kind of like nudging myself to like show. try to do stand up at a strip club, Brent. <laughs> I think you would be great. And I think if, if you're someone that really like believes in truth and, and telling the truth, you will do excellent and just go for it. I'm just it is it feels oh God, there's nothing like when you're up there on stage. It is better than any drug. It truly is. It's just. It is, it just feels so good. Like I'll, my biggest show that I ever did was at the Ford Amphitheater last year on August 29th in front of 800 people. Nice. And when I was on stage performing in front of, it wasn't like, it felt like I was performing in front of like an entity. That was the energy. Okay. I had such a great set that after I got off stage, like the adrenaline that was rushing through my body, I couldn't sleep for three days. Nice. And I'm not on any drugs, okay? <laughs> I like I could not sleep for three days because wow. the laughter and the love and just the excitement from being on the show. And also like I'd, at this point, I'd been doing comedy for almost six years. So this was like me and really kind of just showcasing all the work that I had done. It was just so exhilarating and it felt amazing one of those like milestone moments in life i imagine that you just never forget it was my whitney houston one moment (laughs) in time okay that was it was my moment her moment Oh dear. Yeah, no, for me it's been uh it's been fun i've been able to get like a couple of laughs like i haven't actually like you know slayed the audience yet um, but it definitely, I could see how it is addictive. You yeah. know, it's, it's scary. You know, the first time you get up there and you just start talking and, you know, in, until you get that, you have, you really do have to have that laugh in the first like 30 to 90 seconds. Otherwise it's just like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, I think uh, the, the rush feeling you described is interesting too. And one of the things I kind of, I guess, wanted to comment on is just like how healing laughter is. It's one of the most healing things I can think of actually when you're feeling like shit, you know, just put something funny on or have someone make you laugh. It immediately lifts your spirits up no matter how bad you're feeling. So I kind of view like what comedians do and what you do as like, like a service. Um, It is a service because those 800 people in there that you made laugh for that moment, you lifted those spirits, you know, and someone in that crowd could have been having the worst day ever. And then they walked out of that theater feeling better. Like, wow, you know, she made me, she made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, you know, you could call a lot of people time, you know, they say prostitution is the oldest profession, but we have a history and history of going back with like fools, 
Yeah. And in comedy, you know, as long as you know, storytelling basically has been a skill that's as long as humans have been around. So it's kind of like one of the most ancient professions and being able to get up there and to speak the truth in a way that's humorous. So not only are you getting, you know, the truth across, but you're also like making your audience feel good about it. It's just like, it's like magic to me. It's like white magic. It's just so powerful and so mm -hmm. healing and so cool. I love it. It's really it interesting. It really does feel magical. And you know what is what's funny about it too is like my stand-up, um, it's it just it blows my mind that I'm up there talking about this, a lot of the things I talk about, because it comes from a place of pain. You know, there was a time in my life where I, when I was 13 that like I wanted to kill myself because of my spine of and like I just I hated my body so much, you know. I remember laying in bed being like asking God, like, why? did you do this to me? Like, I'm so angry about it. And my dad, um, he was standing in my doorway and I, cause I didn't get invited to this girl's birthday party. Okay. And, um, it was like, I was in middle school and I was like, it's cause everybody's tall now and everybody has boobs. And I'm like stuck being short with my spina bifida and I don't have boobs. And I just, I should just kill myself. This is horrible. And my dad <laughs> was standing in the doorway and I told him, and this is the first time I'd ever seen my dad cry. And he said, it just breaks my heart that the person I love so much in this world would tell me that they want to kill themselves, you know? And it blows my mind now to think that, like, I am on stage, like, making people laugh, like, talking about the spine of it, but it really does come from such a place of pain. Um, about three years into stand-up, I remember being at the Hollywood Improv, and I was, like, standing there, and I was thinking to myself, like, oh, I have spina bifida and I'm so okay with this. In fact, like, I love it. This is fucking awesome. It's actually great. And the reason I have this is so that I could do this. And I love comedy so much that I would go through all of the pain, all of the shit I went through in, you know, high school and college just to get to this moment. And I was grateful for it. It was like literally at that moment, I was grateful for my disability in the sense of like, I've, I almost feel like, sometimes with my disability like it's really strange like i'm in the disabled world but i'm also like in the normal world because yeah. i've dealt with hate from other disabled people too you know it's like here's what what it is i was born disabled all right and some people become disabled later in life through an accident or whatever and if you're lucky enough to grow old you will experience some form of disability. Yep. Yeah. And if people don't, and I, I say this, it's just like censorship. You know, it's like you think that, oh, it's people don't care about censorship until it happens to them. Mm -hmm. Just like people don't care about disability until it happens to you or someone you really love, you know? Mm -hmm. So in a way, like I can honestly say now, I'm really, I'm grateful for this experience. I still would not wish disability on my worst enemy, but I feel like I'm strong enough to take it. And that's why God gave it to me, you know? That's, I mean, I think it's beautiful that you could get to a place where you not only accept it about yourself, but actually come to like appreciate it. Like, hey, this is like a huge and pivotal part of who I am and has enabled me to have this very unique journey that brought me to this place. I think it's awesome. And, you know, the stuff you talk about, 
the feelings of inadequacy and like, you know, why would God make me this way? Like, I don't know what it's like to deal with that personally, but on Carrie's stream, I talked to you a bit about my mom and, you know, she has cerebral palsy and she's someone who's been born with a disability. And it is a very different type of life than say developing one later. Like for example, my grandma, she's in a nursing home now, now she's disabled. She wasn't right for most of her life. And then as she aged and stuff, things changed. And now she can't really take care of herself anymore. And now she is disabled and she's dealing with that on her own too, because she's always been a very independent person. So it's difficult for someone like my grandma to need people to like do things for her now. Whereas my mom, that's what she's always been like. That's always been her life. And it still hurts her. You know, I, I know she still hasn't really gotten to a place where she's accepted that. And you, you know, there's not much you can do for someone in that position besides just be there for them, right? But, you know, they have to get to that place in themselves where they're content with who they are. And that's, you know, that's an individual journey. You got there. I hope my mom gets there someday because, again, well, I think, it hurts I her. I think your mom's an incredible woman because she had you. And gosh, what an accomplishment, seriously. I'm going to tell her you said that. <laughs> I'm inspired by her truly. My my biggest dream is to be a mom someday. Like that's like my ultimate goal. You can do it. Look, if my mom can do it, you can do it. She had two kids and they came out fine. She didn't even need a miscarriage. And the doctors told her that she might have a miscarriage. Because both of her sisters did and they were normal bodied, not her. So you never know, right? You never know. And I think, you know, with someone like my mom, it it added something to her life that she wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, and I think, I think you should do it, man. If you want to have kids, man, go for it. You could totally be a mom and you'd be a great mom. Oh, thank you. I wanted to pivot a little bit into your filmmaking uh, foray. Actually, before that, I, I don't want to jump out of comedy just yet because oh, okay. I wanted to ask about your comedic influences. Like who are some of your favorite comedians? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, like I love George Carlin. Like I love yeah. George Carlin, Bill Hicks, like the real renegade comedians who, like you said, told truth, but did it in a way that made people laugh. Uh, Carlin was just ridiculous though, because he it just got to the point where he was just like speaking yeah. and his taglines were just like, they weren't even taglines. It's like, there was no punchline anymore. He was just like speaking in such a way that, and, and with such a cadence yeah. and his deliveries were just so perfect. He was a master. He yeah. was a master. It just blows my mind. So who are some of your influences? Like what are some of your favorite comedians? Living in I definitely do love George Carlin, Joan Rivers. I love Joan Rivers because I just love the way she would dress on stage. And cause I like, I love to dress up when I'm on stage, like sparkly dress, my boots and kind of just like, you know, just be really extra yeah, fun when, with I'm, it. when I'm out there. So um, those two would be it. And I also, Andrew Dice Clay as Andrew well. Dice. Yeah, he's funny. Yeah, no, they're good. They're good peoples. I'm like, I don't think I've ever seen any of Joan Rivers' stand up. Now that you mention it, you gotta look her up. There. I don't think she. I, I didn't even know she did stand up. She was talk show for many years, daytime talk show. I remember. That's probably how she got her start. I guess was stand up before she came into the show business. But she was always very like she has. She had this like no nonsense sort of attitude about her, which I really liked. And I love Dave Chappelle. I'm a big Chappelle fan. I have a lot of respect for him. He's classic. Yeah. Well, I think he's doing a lot right now too to just cut through the the you know breaking the ice and and cutting through the the bullshit of the woke culture and just so people can talk about things anymore instead of being offended. And I think 
Chappelle has done a big service for us right now in the culture war and just getting people to stop being so like uptight about shit, like the trans stuff, race, whatever it is. No, it's weird because comedy has become this sort of like almost a battleground in and of itself in the culture war. You have comedians like Hannah Gadsby who aren't funny <laughs> and yet somehow manage to get Netflix specials because they're, they're like woke comedians. It's like the, uh, the the Jimmy uh, of the future in South Park. He just had this like you know he would do stand up comedy that like wasn't a joke. It was just he was handing out compliments and people oh, yeah. were like clapping. Wow, what a beautiful audience. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of thing like woke comedy. They go for like clapter is what they call it. I guess it's right? funny that you brought up Jimmy too because now I'm thinking about the character and he's a disabled. He is a disabled comedian. <laughs> yeah, South that Park. is funny. That is his character. I'm about that. I. You know, I feel I'm kind of like disappointed with a lot of comedians right now, just with uh, everything that's been going on in the world. Um, but just like the election was rigged, comedies, you know, there's a lot of political rigging in stand up as well. So that's why you see some of these comedians who are like, wait a second, how are, how are these people up on stage? It's like, yeah, because it's it's rich, just like, you know. Just like certain other things. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think, do you want to, is that, is that good? Did you want to move into? I'm just hoping can... YouTube doesn't like access. Nah, it's fine. No, 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 no. They won't. They if, won't. Plus we got, I mean, Lila's, Lila's whole uh, documentary here, this two hours. about the election. It's about the history. Okay, so this the is. The history. We are just, and here's the thing. This is why they won't remove it. First of all. We show clips and all everything that's there is completely, it's factual. So we, it, the documentary really speaks for itself. You know, everything that's, it's backed up. So I also yeah, think God wasn't well. up there. So that's why it's still there. Yeah, no, I love how it's a lot of history because it's a lot of hidden history. And this is, what people don't understand is that we don't really get a historical education. We get like a snapshot that the American government approves of. Yeah, And, you know, this is kind of one of the points that the wokest have is that we get sort of this like weird history. You know, their interpretation of history is totally off. Um, but we do sort of like, you know, it's impossible really for us to get a good whole accurate education in history because there's just too much, um, which is why, it, especially recent history, you know, this is all you guys have everything going back to like the early 20th century, um, even talking about some stuff that happened in the 1800s, uh, how they were, you know, stuffing boxes and doing all sorts of, you know, shenanigans in order to manipulate the outcome of American elections in the past. It's really, it's, it's a great collection of stuff. You know, it's about just under two hours. You guys have like, wow, like 13,000 views on it. And when did only, this come out? It's, it's not even been two months. July 4th. Yeah, you guys are killing it. Oh, you dropped it on Independence Day. Smart. Yeah. yeah. Good timing. Clever. I love it. Clever. So yeah. Everybody... So like, um, where did, where did the idea for this film come about? Like what inspired you to create a documentary about voter fraud? Aside from... <clears throat> you know, recent the obvious. elections. Well, okay. So let me just say this. Um, I had a whole life in Los Angeles for the last 10 years. Um, and I, when I performed at the Ford Amphitheater on August 29th of 2021, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm just like, it felt as if I'm about to just take off. Like I'm about, like I have made it. I'm about to just take off in Hollywood. When I got off that stage, First, there was 10 performers. 
I was the only unvaccinated performer, okay? I had my medical exemption. They had me have a COVID test and they put me in the middle of the show. I was the fifth performer. I got a standing ovation. They weren't expecting that. They also told me, Lila, don't do any like dirty jokes. And I was like, I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do. And I just did whatever I wanted to do. And I, cause I treated it like, I was like, this is my showcase. I'm just gonna do whatever I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And the people loved it. Everybody loved it. So when I got off stage, I was going down to try to meet my family. It was the first time where like people were lining up, wanting to take pictures with me, telling me about, you know, their personal stories of like, wow, how my comedy had like inspired them. Right. And I was just so excited. So three days later, I went to the comedy store on Sunset, you know, now known as the communist store. But I go there <laughs> and oh <my> <laughs> I, I had my negative COVID test and my medical exemption because um, in 2017, I developed these blood clots from a surgery that I had. So I, I do get blood clots and that's why I can't, you know, take certain medications. So I have a, you know, a medical exemption, but frankly, I just didn't want it, but whatever. So I go there and I go see the bouncer and I, and mind you, I have been going to this comedy club since I started stand up. I mean, hanging out with people in the back, hanging out with Dave Chappelle, seeing Ron White, um, seeing like, every big comedian that you can think of. I've seen and hung out with them at this establishment yeah the comedy store is huge it's iconic yeah when when dave Chappelle would be performing he would point me out and be like hey lila and say hi to me because his wife's also filipina so cool it's like so nice and um anyways so i go i see the bouncer who i know and i'm like hey like i have um you know i have my medical paperwork here like should be let in i just performed at the you know fort amphitheater what, whatnot and he was like well i need to talk to the manager so they had me standing out there have the manager come, who I also know very well. And he's like, looks at my paperwork. And he's like, so um, Lila, um, we need to like scan this in the back. And then in three days, you can come back here. And I'm thinking, okay, first of all, I thought that this vaccination stuff, wasn't it supposed to be to protect disabled people like me? Okay, that you all know is disabled. I thought the whole reason we were doing this was to protect the vulnerable. And I am the vulnerable. So why aren't you letting me into the establishment? And I, it was, they, they didn't let me in that night. And as I was leaving, the bouncer, who's my friend, says to me, Lila, you should have just shown us a fake vax card and I would have let you in. Nope. And I'm like, okay, so y'all know this is bullshit. Yep. You guys aren't taking this shit, but you're acting like you're taking this shit and you're promoting this to your fans who don't want to take this necessarily, but they want to come see and watch you. How dare you do that? I mean, I was just sickened by it. Yep. So I made this, I made this little clip of me. Um, and I'm like, okay, I guess there's no comedy tonight and I'm moving to Texas. And I told everybody <laughs> that I was going to move to Texas. And two weeks later, me and my husband, we moved out here, okay? And um, I got uh, my friend Chrissy Mayer. At the time, she had posted. She's, <laughs> she's amazing. Yeah, we um, met her once. She's really funny. She was on her street last night. Yeah, yeah. Like, we saw her perform too at the after party for the Minds Festival. Actually, she performed during the Minds Festival too. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, she's funny. She's freaking awesome. Okay, so here's what's funny is that I didn't know Chrissy um, until like I had saw that she had tweeted like six months prior to the event that happened to me. She said that she would not perform at any venues that required this vaccination. So when I posted my video, it, it went viral in the comedy community. 
So she reached out to me. And so she's a comedian from New York. I'm from Los Angeles. And this is how our paths crossed. She reached out to me and she asked me to come on her podcast. So I came on her podcast and this was like the first time I'd ever told this story. I told her, oh, I'm going to move to Texas in two weeks. And she was like, great, I'm going to have a show out there. You should come perform at the show. So about like three weeks later, I'm in Texas. She's in Texas. She asked me to come perform on her show. And I do. And in the audience was Eliza Schaefer and Sydney Watson. And they had a show on You're Here, um, which was at The Blaze. And they were like, oh, my God, you are so funny. You need to come on our show and you know tell your story. We'll fly you out. I'm like, you don't have to fly me out. Like, I live here in Texas now. So I go on their show. And this is the first time that I publicly tell people, you know, my views on I don't want to wear the mask anymore. I don't want to get vaccinated. I don't want to do any of that. I lost 6,000 followers that day. And I had so many people message me and people who I truly still love and care about messaged me telling me how horrible I was. And it was so just heartbreaking. Um, But it was, I, I, it was like really just this process of me, like, you know, you have to like come out. It's almost like coming out of the closet, you know, like letting people know, hey, this is how I, I truly feel about things. But um, we made, me and my husband, we made this documentary because we just want the truth to get out there, to wake more people up. I mean, the reason that we're in this position that we are right now is because people are self-censoring. That's why we are so... The, the algorithms, YouTube, Twitter, it's like teaching you what you can and you can't post. And people are so afraid. So we just wanted the truth to get out there. And so we made this, the two of us, my husband is this sole researcher and editor. I mean, he's just brilliant. Um, I'm, I'm his muse. So, I mean, I can, of course, oh. he has something brilliant, right? He has me to look at. So. <laughs> You gotta have the muse. Yeah, I was watching it. And I was like, "That looks like." I was like, "Is that her husband?" I couldn't tell. But yeah, yeah. I guess it is. We'll have to get him on next. That's cool. Though. I got no, him. he would love to talk to you guys. Yeah, I followed him. I got him on the Twitter, so we'll uh, we'll be in touch. Yeah, the, to him. the mandates, man, and and everything you describe. Um, a lot of people went through that. Um, mm-hmm. maybe not to the degree you did because they didn't have like a following or weren't a public figure. Like, I didn't have six thousand followers to lose, but um. You know, I did lose friends. I did have people ghost me and just completely disappear from my life. So did yeah. Brent. You know, a few openly cut me off and called me horrible things. Yeah, I had people in my messages. Um, I was a substitute teacher before the lockdowns. I even had a couple former students with anonymous accounts um, slipping in my DMs and telling me I'm putting people in danger and that I'm killing grandmas and all this stuff. And it was crazy, you know, and you just kind of have to. Like you say, it's like coming out of the closet. I don't know. It's like, it's like you're drawing a line around yourself and you're saying, these are my boundaries. No one is going to cross this. And you draw that line around yourself. And sometimes people don't understand why you do that. Um, it and, was- and I don't expect everyone to understand, but it is hurtful when, when it's like close friends and family members when you would think they would. Because frankly, any any of those people who cut me off None of them should have been surprised that I reacted in the way that I've reacted. If they really, truly knew me, they should not have been surprised that I questioned every single thing, the mandates, the lockdowns, the shots, even the virus and where it came from. They should not have been shocked that Dan questioned those things. So if they did cut me off after that, I, I'm just like, they never really knew me to begin with. Yeah, yeah I just, I feel like um, 
in 20, it, it was like, I, I feel like I'm going through like a rebirth now, like making the documentary, like with my husband has given me so much confidence. And I feel like a Phoenix that's like rising from the ashes because all of this stuff I went through, I felt I lost my identity for a while. You know, I was Lyle Hart, stand up comedian, going out every single night performing to then we can't perform at all. And then, you know, we had the Zoom comedy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I remember I did I did one Zoom comedy show. Okay? <laughs> and you're like, no, nope, never was... again. <laughs> I okay, but you wanna know what's what's wild to me? I did one Zoom comedy show in the in the middle of the Zoom comedy show, I was so like, just like mortified because it just, it, it's not the same. It's I'm not. like, I'm like crying in my, bombing in my living room, crying by myself. And I was like, let me just turn this off. Like, <laughs> I just, I just closed the laptop. I didn't say goodbye. I was just like, mm, not for me. And then you have to understand, this is what's so funny to me. Me in 2009, me in 2009 would have loved this era because it's like, oh, I could just like totally hide my disability. I'm like, oh my yeah. God, like no one would know about it. Yeah, I'm like, I went through this whole process of like coming out and yeah. being like, oh, I'm disabled. So now we're like, just going to put me in this little box here. Yeah. And <laughs> the hell? Yeah, I remember when I was I was listening to a lot of Rogan at the time, and he was talking about how the a lot of the younger you know newer comics were trying to just you know make Zoom comedy happen, and you know like I I I'd never understood how that would happen because really the whole point of stand up is that you are standing up in front of a room full of people talking, and like the whole thing is that you 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 deliver the tagline and then the audience laughs. And with Zoom, you sterilize all that emotion, all that connection, and you can't even tell if your jokes land because, like, you're—I mean, what are they supposed to do? Like, if they laugh, you're not going to hear it if they're in the audience because you're the only speaker, and it just—it just seemed like yeah, a really you, bad. You need—I think you need that feedback with the audience. You need, you need that presence. Yes. You have to be like you guys, in the room. Do you guys want to know where I go now for my open mic? Where? No, where? I go, I go to AA meetings. That's the best place to do really? open mic. Hell yeah! Because number one, they can't film you. You're not allowed to tell other people what you said. Okay, and I'm allowed to be completely freaking honest as possible. All right, and you know, you just don't have to drink that day, and then you can go. <laughs> and guess what? The most important person in the room is the person with one day. I went to an AA meeting and I, um, cause I was just feeling like, so just frustrated with censorship and I go to the meeting and I'm like, um, I have a resentment today against, uh, the American government and the fact that we've been all been lied to and Biden's not the real president, you know? And if anybody is pissed off about this, well, we're all fucked up and you can't kick me out because you're fucked up too. I'm fucked up. And, uh, now you have to listen and you have to listen to me because you can't censor me in this room. <laughs> this is why I love Alex Stein. Have you seen his work? He's the guy. Yeah, him and Cassidy Campbell got the popularity because they do the little like going to town meetings thing and giving their public discourse and, and turning it into just ridiculous. They're going to start getting recognized more. Though. Well, they have. They yeah. have started getting recognized. But this is the thing, like, you know, being able to to use these venues like one of the things that i've heard other comics say is like you get in a habit of talking to random people in public and trying to make like people in public laugh like uh like if you're in line and you're just standing in line you know at the fucking food store 
like you know try try your your jokes on those people because they're captive they can't go anywhere like and they'll give you an honest reaction like they're not going to laugh at your your bullshit joke just because you know you're in a comic you know comedy space like you know really if it's funny if you're, you're doing it inside at some other space that's not you know geared for for comedy yeah especially if they're sober because people are a lot more likely to laugh if they've been drinking that's true i think i also think too like the reason zoom comedy doesn't work is because stand up like when you're in a room or like if we were in person right and i'm telling and i'm talking to you you can feel the energy you can feel it's like it's it's there's you can't feel that through a screen it's yeah. not the same it really truly isn't and and it's like when you're that's why i say like when people tell jokes on twitter it's like it's not it's not the same it just really isn't because there you can't hear the inflection in somebody's voice you can't see the facial expression because there's certain things that if i tweeted people would be like that's so freaking horrible how could you say that lila but if i'm saying it on stage and you see my voice and you see my movement it's not offensive because yeah. you can you take everything into account right like there are certain things I can get away with saying because of my disability, because of my experience in life that I can say, and it's even funnier with me saying it, but it only works if you can really truly see all of me. Cause here it's, it really, it's just not the same. And that's why stand up is such an amazing art form because you get feedback right away. They'll let you know if they like you. Yeah. Okay. It, it, like YouTube comedy or and that stuff. It's like, you can edit, you can edit music, you can do this thing or whatever. But on stage, it's like, if you're bombing, you're bombing and you're there by yourself. There ain't no cuts. There ain't no yeah. little music. No it's just like, a, it's you, yeah. And I also love it so much because it is the one thing that like, first of all, universally, universally, technically anybody could do it, right? It's just you and the microphone. Anybody could do it, but it's, it, it really takes a special skill to be really good at it. And also there's no cap at how great you could become, especially if you truly put in the work. So I think you should go to Mike's, talk to people at the grocery store. If you have an inkling in your heart that this is something you want to do, go for it. Just do it. That's what, that's, you just have to start. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I like making gay jokes because well, it's what you know. I'm gay. <laughs> <laughs> what you know. Well, like she said, you know, you you make jokes about the truth because the funniest thing you can talk about is is what's true. And it's because it resonates with people. They know it's true. That's why they laugh at it. Yeah. And there's also something, you know, I, I think it comes across in your delivery too when you're when you're speaking the truth. And and it doesn't actually have to be like something one hundred percent true to to fact, but like true in, in spirit and true in story is also, you know, just as as, as a, a, you know, variable or just as good thing to, to get across. Yeah, well, I'm sure a lot of comedians like embellish their stories a little. You well, know, you have to, you jokes. know, a good story is, you know, you gotta have the right embellish, just the right amount in the right spots. And that's one of the things that I've noticed with, uh, you know, like stand up and going to open mics, like just to get five minutes is work. It, you know, and to get five minutes that's good, that that kills, that you know, consistently delivers laughs, that you know, takes a lot of a lot of work, and then you you build on that. You know, so you go from your five minutes to your fifteen minutes, and then you try to you know, come up with a new five minutes, and then a new fifteen minutes, and then eventually you, you tie it together to get an hour. How many how many years would you say you were doing like smaller clubs and like kind of practicing before you like did like your first major show? And well, like what was your first major show? Um, 
I would say I was like my first year, I was really just hitting up all the clubs and going to it. Just, I, I remember I did an open mic at a taco stand. <laughs> the people I were performing in front of didn't really like speak English. So I had to, it, but it was great because I had to really be like exaggerating with my face and they were still laughing even though they couldn't understand me. Um, just because I was, you know, being like just eccentric with my movements. And so that was really good. But are you, uh, are you a fan of Lucille Ball? Lucille Ball, yes. Yeah, because she was very well known for that. And like just the facial expressions and, and the movements and like the exaggerated things that she would do, it made her so iconic as a comedian. Um, the first big show I did was Crack 'em Up Thursdays at the Comedy Store uh, my first year. And then I would do like their I anniversary show so it's like it's it's a mostly black room it's called crack them up and uh, gosh it was so much fun but i i've done a ton of shows it's just like these last two years have really just changed a lot of things yeah. it's really fun to sit with you guys and like reminisce on when things were normal oh when things were normal <laughs> i mean they're sort of going back to normal but not really i don't think anything's ever going to go back to well, totally you know works. we're getting we're just starting to get back to normal normality and then we're starting now we're entering the next election cycle which means things it's going to get fucking get bad shit fucking again. crazy yeah again. it's going to get bad shit again between now first now we got now in november so at least that won't be so bad you know and once hopefully once we get past this you know next couple of month period we'll have a lot of more you know conservatives real conservatives america first conservatives and not these you know like wannabe rhino plutocrats that just you know sit there and do whatever they're told yeah. by the leadership of the party or just some independent thinkers it doesn't even have to be conservatives just people who are smart enough to you know to think critically about the issues and not uh, not be like so entrenched in their own views i'd love know? if we had some more like thomas massey's and uh Josh Hawley and uh, who are the other ones? Uh, Rand Paul. I love Rand Paul. He's such a fire. Yeah, and then, you know, Tulsi to name a Democrat who's not. Crazy. She's not in politics right now. She's actually good. Uh, she she's, should, she's she should probably stay out. <laughs> I, think, I think as comedians, we are supposed to make fun of everyone and everything yeah. and both sides. And actually, like, you know, the best comedy is you don't really like know what side of the spectrum they're on. Like, you should be making fun of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And what it's turned into is this kind of comedians are, you know, they're doing this woke propaganda so that they can get on shows and they can kind of like be pushed up by the establishments. And it's like, it's, it's really sad because we're, we're supposed to be the ones that are like, you know, poking fun at all of it. All the sacred cows, all the sacred cows. Yeah, and that's the, the beauty of comedy is that it, it can be turned on any subject, you know, any group of people. It's like everybody can be made fun of. And that's like the fun part is like, you know, figuring out you know, what is the way to do that that is funny and not offensive. And if you're a little too offended, if people are too easily offended, then, you know, like comedy is just not, it's, it's not for them because part of the whole point is to walk that line. Well, the, this makes me want to, I guess, talk a little bit about the trans issue here in, in relation to comedy, because, you know, look at what happened with, with Chappelle and, and his last couple specials that he did, but his last one, in particular, stirred up a whole new controversy. People were protesting him and stuff over making fun of trans people. And it kind of touches on this thing that Brent's talking about is like, 
doesn't that make you you're more equal now in society the fact that you are now being made fun of along with all the rest of us is something you should probably look at as a good thing it's almost like an honor it's like hey you are you are as a group you're so recognized now in our culture you can be made fun of just like the gays just like the black people just like jewish people just like filipino people just like disabled people like welcome to the fucking club this is what it's like in humanity you are now being made fun of too welcome <laughs> i i think that the best stand-up the best jokes um because people are like what's an offensive joke or what's a good joke or whatever it's like if you can tell your joke if you have a look for example if you are a person who wants to joke about people in wheelchairs right it's a good joke if you could tell that joke in front of a room full of people in wheelchairs that's mm -hmm. how you know it's a good joke yes. okay i um in 2016 I was on an episode of Little Women LA. They invited me to come perform in front of the girls and do you know, my set. And I remember right before I was going on stage, I'm like, Lila, are you gonna do your midget jokes? Are you gonna say it? Are you gonna do it? And I was like, hell yeah, I am, because I believe in this joke and I know it's funny. So I go on stage and I do my bit and I say the word midget, right? And it's part of the joke. And um, I get off stage and I'm meeting the girls for the first time. Um, I was so excited to meet them. And I remember I walk out and the girls sit and they're sitting in front of me like this. And they're like, you know what, Lila? We really don't like the fact that you use the M word. And, stand up. and I was like, all right, listen here, midget bitch. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, first of all, I am not using the word to offend you. I'm using the word because this is a word that used to hurt me, all right? And by using it in my standup, I'm taking the power back for myself. And for a long time, the word midget used to really like, oh my God, it used to make me so sick. It would make me feel so uncomfortable because here's the thing, you're not saying like, oh damn, that's a fine sexy midget over there. You're like, oh my God, it's a midget. You know, that's what people do. It's not. <laughs> It's not used in like a flattering way. If it was like, oh, she's a fine midget, I'll be like, okay, I'll, I'll take it. You know what I mean? But it's it just depends on how they're doing it. And so yeah. that was the first time I was like, I was shocked that these girls were upset with me. Cause I'm like, aren't you on a show called Little Women where like, it's the fact that you are all little and you're gonna tell me that I can't use the, the N word, all right? And, yeah. um, but it was also great because I didn't back down and I didn't apologize to them. You guys, I have the clip on my YouTube or it's on, it's online. If you just type in Lila Hart, Little Women, you'll see the three minute clip of this, but I didn't back down and I didn't apologize. And I, and I really felt like I did a service to stand up comedians that like, Hey, I'm telling jokes. And if you're offended by this, that has something to do with you. Yeah. And when I first, okay, I was, uh, sorry, I'll tell you guys when I first, um, two weeks before I started stand up. I went to a comedy show at the Laugh Factory and there was a comedian named Adam Ray. He was on stage and he was telling a joke about his midget buddy, uh, Brad Williams. And I remember sitting there like seething, like, oh my God, he said the word midget. Everybody's gonna think the joke is about me. And like, I was like freaking out, right? And at the end of the night, my friend was like, Lila, you should go up to him and tell him that you were like, you know, offended by his midget use of saying midget. And I was like, no, no. Even then I knew I was like, this is a me problem. Something is going on with me. But the fact that he's talking about a midget man and I'm over here thinking everyone's gonna look at me, you know, this is a me issue and I need to figure this out. Two weeks later, I started stand up. And 
doing stand up helped me get over all of that. And now it's like, now I'm so over it. I don't even like, my comedy has evolved so much. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I understand why the girls were upset, but at that time I, I was working out my own stuff, you know? And now I don't even use those, I don't even do those jokes anymore. Not because I, I don't think that they're funny. I think they're fucking hilarious, but I've just evolved as a comedian and I'm kind of moving on to other things. And we as comedians now are not even allowed to just, you know, try out jokes, try out bits. Like the fact that you could be recorded on stage, posted on Twitter and be like, my gosh, look at how horrible this person is. And it's like, I'm just trying to work out a bit here. I'm just yeah. trying things. And how are we, it's just insane, but yeah. I'm really proud of myself, but I didn't say, I'm sorry, I won't do that. I was like, no, I'm gonna do it more actually. <laughs> I mean, that that was already sort of a sign of how you would respond later on to, to the mandates and the lockdowns and, and things of that sort. It's like, it was already in you, that firecracker spirit, like, no, no, no I'm not doing this. <laughs> And yeah. I was so like, here, the thing that made me sad to you is like, I was so excited to meet these girls because yeah. four years prior, I remember being in college and I was like watching them and I was like, I really want to like meet them someday. And then I, I meet them and they don't like me because oh. of my standup. And I was like, wait, what? Yeah. But whatever. It's Amazing. bummer. Well, it was a teachable well we're, we're all friends now, you know, we've all made up now and we're good. It's a teachable but... moment for them too, you know, it probably helped them confront something about themselves because like you said, it was a problem with them, not with you. Yeah. And, and again, I understood that because I had my own issues with it. It's like we, so. Yeah, no, uh, comedy is it's so, it's so special. It's so magical. I love it. Um, and that's why I, I can't wait to watch you perform. <laughs> Come on, Brian. You gotta get up there now. And maybe a little more. Let's do, let's do more. <laughs> we gotta go. I gotta get myself into uh, a couple other open mics. They have pretty regular ones here in the city. Um, it's not easy to get up there to do anything, whether you're performing, you know, comedy or music or. or no, acting. I always get I always get the crazy tummy butterflies. Yeah. But as soon as I start talking, and as long as I sort of have like a frame of reference, like if I know, like I, I can't just like go up there. Like I, I went to a uh, event that was like a. Airbnb experience thing where you like pay somebody like some money and you go to a comedy show with like an actual comic and then you sort of like walk you through it and then you get up on stage and do your five minutes. And there was a couple of uh, some other people there with me and like I actually had like, you know, like five minutes like charted out that I had rehearsed before and then some people were there that were just like oh i'm just gonna wing it i'm just gonna get up there and start talking and i was like yeah we'll see how that goes yeah didn't go well <laughs> so uh you know it was a lot of fun you know like i i enjoy what i would do is i would go for walks you know i take my dog for a walk in the morning and then i would you know pull out my phone and i just start talking to my phone and recording uh and just sort of rambling you know have like an idea and then i would go back and i put it on the page and type it out and then i'd start messing with the words and, and seeing if there's different ways to play it around play a puzzle with it but that um, is that's how that's really good actually because you know some comedians will be like oh i just go up there and wing it it's like that's not what i do I, I everything i say is I actually written out and you know maybe in the moment if i can feel it i'm like oh i'll add this in right you know, it is prepared it just looks like that's the beauty of it. It's supposed to yeah. look like it's effortless, right? Yeah. You just go up there and you're talking. But the best stand-up is not actually, it wasn't just 
off the top. This was years of writing and like figuring it out and going to open mics and seeing how people react and knowing that, oh, if I just make my facial expression a little bit like this, that will make the joke hit even yeah. harder. Yeah, stand-up, it's, it's unique because it's one of the few arts where you are writing your performance and performing it yourself. Like in most acting gigs, you know, the writers and the actors are completely separate, uh, completely separate professions. And then you have the director, which is actually like the go-between to tell them, you know, exactly how they want the, the scene delivered. And you don't have any of that with stand-up. You know, you are your own boss, you're your own writer, your own director, your own performer. And, you know, all of it is on you. And that's what kind of is, is magical and, and really painstaking and difficult uh, about it. That's why I love it. It's, it's really interesting. Um, and the other thing that sucks is when people try to critique your comedy, right? Because a lot of times, you know, especially when we have these viral moments where a comedian says something that's quote unquote offensive, they take a joke completely out of context. You know, they, they sterilize it by taking the words and printing them on the page, which is like the worst thing you can do because, you know, as you just said, facial expression, tone of voice, body language, all of that goes into the funny of the joke. And so if you just, you know, excise the words out of the context of everything else and put it on a page, of course, you know, somebody else reading that is it can can interpret it that and if, especially if you change the framing you can make it seem like it's a lot more offensive than mm -hmm. it is then there's also comedy without words like slapstick and that sort of thing mm -hmm. where yeah. you're literally just making people laugh with just expressions and movements and whatever you're you know doing up there yeah there's like so many different ways and the body language and the the physical uh, comedy is really important i'll never forget this one performance uh that joe rogan did where he was making the uh the joke about um What's his name? Or what's her name, rather? <laughs> uh, the trans woman, very famous. Caitlyn Jenner? Caitlyn Jenner. Making the, the Caitlyn Jenner joke. And he climbs up on the stool and he's like, you know, leaning over and pretending to be like a demon whispering into his ear. It was so, oh, it was brutal. Yeah, well, that's why I brought up Lucille Ball because she was really good at that. The, the physical aspects of the comedy, you know, the facial expressions, the weird, like, body language and, and that sort of thing. It was just wacky. It was crazy. And ahead of its time, man. I Love Lucy was so ahead of its time. Yeah, well, women in comedy, too. Yeah, like, well, she, and women she, performers. She paved the way for women she really in did. comedy. In many, many ways, she paved the way. And, I mean, they also, like, helped launch a whole, like, TV studio. And they, like, even changed, like, her and Desi changed TV in general. Like, a live studio audience, that wasn't a thing yeah. before I Love Lucy. So that's one of the... The, that the things they would do and like shooting a show with like two or three cameras stuff like that like things that weren't even being done yet and she was at the helm of that like a lot of those ideas came directly from lucy herself so yeah she's amazing um is there anything else you wanted to get into mr besides Daniel? i love lucy besides <laughs> I love Lucy. no i think i mean i think we covered most things um i guess we can kind of end I kind of want to end a little bit on politics and go a bit into into Lila's politics, you know, and we kind of touched on this stuff before, but, you know, what other changes have you, say, I guess, noticed in how people, like, treat you, not just as someone who's, like, disabled or a comedian, but just as a person in general, for being more open about, say, your views that are more conservative? Um, like, I'm, I'm assuming you're a Republican. I don't I don't know your political party stance. I think both both sides of the establishments would, wouldn't like me. Okay, I just That's how we feel too. <laughs> you so. know, I think I think both sides wouldn't like me. Um, 
I would say this is how I feel. I, I believe in freedom of speech. I believe that everybody should have, we live in America. We should be allowed to have our, our freedoms to say what we want to say. I think that just don't mess with the kids. I don't care if you're gay, straight, lesbian, transsexual, just leave the children alone. Agreed. And because, um, yeah, that's, we could talk about that for a long time. But, um, and I just, I just want to be able to have my family, you know, it's what's most important to me. But I, um, yeah, I just, I feel like now that I've like, especially now that I've, we've made the movie, like, again, I feel like I'm going through this like rebirth and I'm getting my identity back as a stand-up comedian and a filmmaker because I went through like a, a bit of a depression really, like just kind of move, having to like move my whole life and like also watch a lot of comedians who I started with performing all over the you know world because they're allowed into countries and they're allowed to do things. And it's really hard for me sometimes when I see people who I started with stand-up, you know, like they'll get a Netflix show, but then I have to remind myself, oh, Lila, you know, you have to be vaccinated to even audition. You have to be vaccinated to even be part yeah. of that. So it's like, that's, that's what's been kind of interesting to me is that I've seen certain people like, you know, blow up, but I also have to say, remind myself like they're compromised and they kind yeah. of just fell into, you know, following the agenda. But I think I, now that we've made the movie and I've connected with great individuals like you and Carrie and Chrissy, it's just, it's helped me be stronger. So again, I want to thank you guys so much for having me on your podcast and giving me a place just to speak uh, because this is healing for me. This helps me so much. Connecting with other people who are, you know, also questioning things and not afraid. And I definitely think that you should get into stand-up because we need more people who are willing it, to bro. actually talk about the truth. Do it. So, yes, do it. I will. I hope he takes that to heart. I'm gonna, I am. I'm, I'm going gonna, to force you out the door next week. I'm going gonna, gonna to go this week. This week. We're gonna, this week. And let me know how it goes. I will I'll record it. I gotta record yes, it. Yes, please let me know how it goes. But, but no, truly, I feel like I, I just, I feel so much better. If you guys watch my episode on "You Are Here" with Eliza Schaefer and Sydney Watson from September, like ten minutes ago, I am crying the whole time. They called me a cry median. I'm also, I kind of cried on this one too. What am it's I talking fine. about? Okay. No, I mean, it's fine. But I was just so emotional because I was like, oh, I know everybody's gonna hate me, not like me because of this, but. Now I'm at the point, I'm like, you know what? If you don't like me, that's fine. I know that I'm on the right side of history. And every day that goes by, the documentary will look even more powerful. And my decisions will look even more correct. And um, you may not like me, but you will respect me. Yeah. And that's the truth. All these people, they, they still watch my stuff. They respect me. And, you know, uh, I'm just so happy that I got this opportunity to speak to you too. You're very lovely men and i enjoy we are very grateful you came to talk to us and we were very excited to speak with you oh. we'll, we'll do it again um you know if you're ever in new york city please contact us you know we'd love to see you do stand up and hang out and get coffee and all that stuff to yeah. be fun. totally um and let everyone know where they can find yes. you lila you guys can find me at lilaheart.com and um, the documentary is also lilaheart.com slash documentary or just go on YouTube and type in American history of voter fraud and it'll pop right up. And I'm um, at love Lila Hart on all platforms. It's so funny. I made it love Lila Hart because I wanted everyone to love me. Oh, um. <laughs> perfect. 
That's perfect. And it's heart H A R T folks. If and they yes. should love heart, you. Heart with and those and links it, will be in the description. And if they don't love you, fuck them. Yeah. Um, if they don't, if they don't love me, they still respect me though. They don't have to, but like yeah. you said, they're going to fucking respect me. I don't know. They watch a little bit of your stand up, and they're going to laugh. It's just, Hey, yeah. not everyone's for everyone. You know, and this is another thing I realized too. Like a lot of people who are like mean to you online or like say stuff. It's like, I just remind myself they met me in person. They would never dare. Yep say that to me oh yes place. they just really wouldn't and they would probably end up liking me so it's like go ahead say whatever you want to say my husband is a comedian roast battler so like he will just come after you anyways yeah nice. i mean honestly though there are people on twitter though like they say some things and i'm just like you've never been you've never been punched have you <laughs> <laughs> And with that, we'll end note. the recording. Thanks for watching, folks. We'll be back again soon with another one. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. Bye.